Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Hi everybody and welcome to October 2015 with Talking Biotech and the a weekly podcast that talks about how we can drive innovation to application by improving our communication and thinking about ways we can cover this topic of biotechnology and its associated sciences, um, plant breeding, and we'll have a really interesting one in a few weeks about, or maybe next week, about um, some uh, other ways of sustainable production. And it's not just about our genetics, it's about the way that we employ those genetics and what we're learning from some alternative production techniques that can make those applications uh, even better and more sustainable and how we can have excellent effects on our environment um, as well as uh, the providing profitable farming for farmers. So today's episode, we'll talk to Cybabe, uh, Yvette Dantremont, which I always get that wrong, pardon my French, um, and uh then I'll follow up with some of your questions. And uh, in the next couple of weeks, I'm getting away from the old format where we have two guests because the one comment I consistently get is, I really like the podcast. It's just too long. And so we'll break it down into smaller uh, units that we'll do maybe one guest a week. And I uh, have a great backlog of really good material coming. And uh, follow up maybe with some of your questions or some smaller stories. And I think this uh, little bit of an adjustment is warranted and something that will be very positive in the long run. So with that, let's go ahead to today's episode of Talking Biotech with Cybabe, talking about toxicity. What is toxic and what's not? So welcome to today's Talking Biotech, and uh, it's really our motto is to move innovation to application with communication. And one of the folks who's been at the front line of helping to diffuse a lot of the myths that are occurring around food and farming has been the Cybabe, um, Yvette Dantremont. And uh, Yvette is uh, someone who I've had opportunities to work with in a number of occasions, and always am excited to hear her perspectives. And uh, welcome to Talking Biotech, Yvette. Thank you so much for having me, Kevin. It's it's nice to catch up with you again. And it, it's been it's been an interesting past couple of weeks. Um, and I, I think people need to uh, to hear a couple of different perspectives in this field. So uh, thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. And it's great to uh, to catch up a bit. That's wonderful to have you here. And it would be actually it'd be wonderful if you were here because then we could <laughs> go do something afterwards. But um, I guess the the why don't you give me a little bit of background about where you come from in your scientific training? Because I think it's germane to today's discussion. Discussion. It's uh, the number of times people and you and I have seen this on Twitter a lot with our with a couple of our dear friends that ha- seem to have nothing to do but tweet at us. Um, I have a uh, it's, I have a bachelor's in chemistry and theater. Um, I have a, uh, a master's degree in forensic science, and then I had a couple different uh, jobs before I started running Cybabe full time. Um, I had uh, I d- taught college for a year. I was an instructor uh, teaching um, analytical chemistry, general chemistry, and biochem labs. Um, I worked at 
as a toxicology chemist. A, um, a, a, at one point, I worked as an explosives chemist for a Homeland Security uh, um, contractor. Um, and most recently, I worked as a pest, as an analytical chemist at a pesticide company. And when I was working there, that was when I kind of really started getting into the fray of this uh, of this kind of battle that we have on the internet with people who say there's no research done into these pesticides before they hit market. And I'm like, yes, I really just lick the vial and then say it's probably not going to kill your kids before approving it for sale, uh, which I, I promise you that's that's not how it works. Um, so this is uh, that's kind of how I got into, uh, you know, there are a lot of other things that landed me at where I am now in terms of being the skeptic and the, you know, the very vocal person I am about what I, uh, about, you know, biotech and about, um, you know, science versus pseudoscience. But, you know, my last field was pesticide analysis. And I think, um, people understanding that there is a scientist behind this and there is a person that wants these to be safe, not just for you, but for themselves, who's a consumer of these. I think it's a very important pe- thing for people to understand. Yeah, I, I yeah. met with the uh, Olson, or Olson, the Peterson Farm. Oh, well, that was weird. I'll have to cut that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The Peterson Farm. So yeah, we, sorry. we met with the, uh, I met with the Peterson Farm brothers not too long ago and one of them oh, said I, I love their website oh yeah then they're, they're really nice guys and super cool and and one of them said you know that he uh he uses glyphosate on his farm and yep. he uses it all the time and it works really well for them and that he would never spray a chemical that was dangerous anywhere near his family and that he understands how it works he understands how to apply it and he does it responsibly yep. Absolutely, and I think people when they uh, when they say they're trying to save people, or you know, when they see these uh, kind of you know these food bloggers saying that they're trying to save people from from toxic chemicals, they they kind of. Um, I guess the best way to phrase this is they, they're kind of are talking down to farmers and they're trying to claim that farmers don't know what they're doing. And that's kind of a horrible perspective. This this cuts out uh, this very vital part of, of the American food system that knows their job, knows the crops, and has really looked into this. This is saying farmers don't know what they're doing. And that's a horrible, horrible thing to say uh, to a group of people that I've come to, to really respect while I've been doing my job. And I've come to know them as such a vital part of, of our food chain um, through through this work that I've been doing. So I, I think that we need to stop saying that farmers don't know what they're doing. Um, it's a it's kind of it's just a horrible thing that it's a horrible perspective and it's so cynical. Well, and and worse is that you know these we they're one percent of our population that feed us, and their average age of fifty eight, and uh, it's almost a crisis situation to get more people excited about joining into farming and seeing the nobility in raising food for a hungry planet, and uh, in this kind of rhetoric, it it steers people away from thinking about those as viable careers, especially uh, kids. And really, wow. that, and I guess the average age is fifty-eight. The, I, I didn't. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, the average age is fifty-eight. So, and and if you think about that, um, you know, there's not a lot of uh, two and four-year-olds dragging that average down. I mean, it's this is a bubble that's really ready to burst. And uh, the work, you know, it certainly is getting uh, changing because of automation and other aspects. But some of the biggest innovations that have allowed them to continue profiting or profiting profitable farming have been uh, GM crops and that's one of the things that in talking biotech that we spend a lot of time mostly with future innovations but we can go back and look at the last 20 years and the horror stories predicted Mm -hmm. by folks in the 90s never came true so now they're moving the goalpost and asking us about well what about the hidden toxins and, Absolutely. <laughs> and I thought the toxin buzzword might kind of set off your radar there. So when people are talking about toxins, why do they gravitate towards that term and why is it an effective rhetorical tool? Well, so many times you hear toxins thrown around as this huge nebulous term that toxins are killing us, toxins are in everything. And I mean, you hear toxins applied to everything from, you hear someone saying they have to do a detox for better health, or if they detox, they'll lose weight, or if you cut X, Y, and Z out of your diet, um, you'll get rid of toxins and your life will be better, you won't be tired, you won't be this, that, or the other thing. And I mean, this is just this new buzzword in the alternative health community, and sometimes it's snuck over into the mainstream 
you know, health buzzwords. I've seen it everywhere from, you know, alternative health blogs, even onto Yahoo Health. And Yahoo is the is like the number five website on the planet. And this is like, it, this is huge. So the fact that it's made it so mainstream is, is a little horrifying when you need to ask, what's the definition of a toxin? How do people who are actual toxicologists or with backgrounds in toxicology use this word? And what is it, what's the practical and accurate uh, application for health? So, I mean, when we are studying a pesticide or, so here's the, you know, the, the truth of it. When we're studying a pesticide to be used and to be put into a new product for the market, we have to ask ourselves a few questions. Number one, does it uh, get the target species? So if we're making a pesticide that's just going to be used on a bug, it needs to be strong enough that it will kill the target bug, uh, but it won't kill the plant or the person, or never mind kill, won't even harm the target person at the dosage that it will hurt the bug. So it has to be species-specific to the bug, not going to hurt the person or the plant. Um, it has to not harm the environment. It has to not break down into anything that will harm the environment, or the, or again, or the plant or the person. So things can be species-specific and not harm anything around it. So, I mean, one of the gr- good examples that I can kind of think of of this, other than a pesticide, and again, we're thinking about toxins as a whole, um, um, is chocolate. So, I mean, chocolate, I, I, I'm a big fan. <laughs> this is this is not always good for my waistline, but very good for my, uh, very good for me mentally. But moving on, um, chocolate, not very good for our four-legged friends, not very good for dogs. Uh, it's toxic to your dog. But do you ever think of chocolate as a toxin? I it's not really right but i mean that's the thing that people don't think of uh think about the word toxin um contextually um so even though a pesticide is toxic to a target species it's not toxic to a human in the dosage that we use it on a crop so again chocolate just like a a pesticide can be toxic to a target species not to uh not to a human so when we throw around this word toxin uh, and say, you know, these foods have toxins in it, not really. When something hits market, it's generally safe. It's been uh, tested. We've proven very, very carefully that things, once they get into the food supply, are safe for people. So I, I want pe- to implore people not to throw around the word toxin uh, unless they've really researched it, unless they know about dose dependency and about uh, things being species specific. So, I mean, be careful about the usage of it and be careful uh, that you know about dose de- dependency and about species-specific uh, uh, reactions. Yeah, we'll touch on both of those concepts, but let's talk a little bit more about that species specificity thing, oh, especially, yeah. well, especially since you brought it up with dogs. By analogy, how have our pesticides, especially our insecticides, changed towards species specificity? Oh, there are a lot of uh, things that we've done. Like one of the best examples I can think of is uh, with the BT toxin uh, that we've now. And I mean, the thing I love bringing up about the BT toxin um, is that it's actually an organic. uh, It's 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 actually an organic uh, uh, product. Um, If you can just because I don't have it in front of me, what's the uh, the the full name of the BT uh, toxin? Well, it's uh, it's Bacillus thuringiensis is the bacterium, and it's used in the organic preparation called Dipel. It's exactly. And I mean, here's the thing. This is because it's a naturally occurring bacteria. Organic farmers use this on their farm. And I mean, this is something that is very bad for certain types of, uh, of bugs. It can it it's very bad it, from what I gather. It, and I mean, I hate using this term because it sounds so uh, unscientific, but it, it basically makes their their stomachs explode. And I mean, it's that's not uh, that's that doesn't sound very sciencey, but that's, that's a pretty good breakdown of what happens. But this only happens to to a certain type of bug uh, that's very bad for corn crops and very bad for certain types of crops. Now, we can apply this to an or now now because of how regulations work um, on and it's and because it's a naturally occurring quote unquote toxin um, or naturally occurring bacteria. This can be applied to organic crops. Now they found a way to you know via uh, genetic modification make this occur uh, naturally uh, or make this occur in uh, a genetically modified crop. Um, but here's the thing: when you use do this in uh, gene- via genetic modification, uh, you actually apply. From what I gather, you're uh, you're making less of this occur in nature um, than uh, than you would via application in, that they do in the organic farming. So there's actually less uh, measurable BT 
in the genetic modified crops than you have when you're applying it to the crops. So when people are complaining about um, about the the genetic modifi- modification and complaining about it being you know there being a pesticide in the crop, they're not quite understanding uh, that there's you know this is not something that's going to harm a human. It's very specific uh, to this one species. Again, it's chocolate to dogs. It's it's just going to harm this one species. There actually is a lot known about the mechanism of how it works. And it's processed specifically in the gut of these lepidopteran caterpillars. Uh, which, which, as you say, uh, you know, consume corn and in cotton, and then uh, it binds a specific receptor, which no other animals have. It makes a little bit of a uh, cluster of these receptors, which form a pore that allow the inside of the gut and the outside to mix, and it dies because it gets, uh, you know, sick from that. Um, but, but great idea about species specificity. Touch on this dose response concept, and what exactly do people need to think about when we talk about dose response? Well, I mean, there's a, uh, here's something I, I can bring up. I mean, and we're going to keep on going with the chocolate example because I, I love the fact that we can actually die from eating chocolate because this is how I'm going to go out. God damn it. I'm going to, I'm going to go for death by chocolate one day. It's because I'm not a quitter. Um, but again, things are dose uh, specific. Like, and, and one of the good examples I can bring up with this is Tylenol. Tylenol in uh, two pills can reduce a fever. It can be an effective pain reliever for certain types of pain. Uh, and it's, it, it's a very useful drug uh, within, you know, for, for certain things uh, in, in small doses. Uh, 50 pills of it is going to land you in the hospital and possibly kill you via, um, you know, via, via liver toxicity, via hepatoxicity. It's going, it's very bad for your liver. Um, and be, for chronic use, it can slowly uh, cause, uh, cause liver scarring over a certain amount. So, I mean, dose, dose dependency is a very important thing to keep in mind, even for things that are good for you or useful for you in certain amounts. So, I mean, back to the argument of pesticides, even though um, they're they're useful for plants in the right amount, yeah, it's, and I mean, I it, saying this, uh, I'm going to say this on the microphone because I think people, when they hear that these are toxic in large amounts, um, I was on uh, Dr. Drew's podcast a few weeks ago, and I asked him uh, if he'd ever seen a case of pesticide poisoning. He said once from a gardener who uh, sprayed it inappropriately. And I mean, that's, you know, and that's in how many years of practicing medicine? He'd never seen somebody experience a case of pesticide poisoning from eating produce. So people hearing that pesticides are bad and horrible and scary for you, you're not going to get sick from it. You can barely detect it. I mean, barely detect it in your blood uh, from from uh, using it. I mean, this is these are at levels, or from, uh, you can barely detect it in your blood from consuming uh, the food that you see on the market. Not not the organic pesticides, and yes, there are organic pesticides, not the synthetic ones. It's safe. But, I mean, another example of this, and not just the Tylenol, um, the, uh, I mentioned, I keep mentioning the chocolate example. Even though it's bad for your dog and very, uh, in, in low amounts, you can indeed, the, the same quantity, or the, sorry, the same um, uh, uh, product in the chocolate that's bad for your dogs can kill you as well, just at a very high uh, quantity. Um, milk chocolate um, can kill you if you eat about 90 pounds of it. It's the theobromine um, in the chocolate uh, that that's bad for dogs. Um, so it's and that same chemical can be bad for humans. So, but the difference is you'll have to worry. It's just about a pound or so over the course of a lifetime can kill a dog. It'll take 90 pounds to kill you, but I'm not a quitter. That's how I plan to go out when I'm old. <laughs> yeah, it, it just kind of bothers me because I paid 75 bucks to put my dog to sleep and I could have just put oh. it a Hershey bar. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? Um, I guess another uh, thought about no, this. It's that that's, but I think it was probably the more humane thing of you to do because yeah. I, I don't I don't know if they suffer if they it, it, after the liver failure. So I think it's probably the better you you did a you did a good thing, Kevin. Okay, I'll so. I'll, I'll, I'll put I'll put a gold star by that one. Um, <laughs> I guess the the other interesting thing about this, and you mentioned the level of detection, and I think that that it really plays into the chemophobia we see is that people are saying, well, there's pesticides in their blood or pesticides on my food or pesticides in my air or water. And really uh-huh. all this is a this is a real testament to our ability to detect almost nothing. Yeah, and basically. It's once upon a time we wouldn't have det- I mean, one day we're going to be able to like right now I mean, if we went back to um 
you know, to the to the the dawn of uh, of uh, gas chromatography, how what could we detect parts per million? Now we can detect down to parts per billion. One day we're going to be able to detect parts per trillion. I mean, that's nothing. That's next to nothing. So I mean, how how little are we going to be able to detect? How sensitive are these instruments going to get? So I mean, that's it's it's an amazingly small quantity that we're detecting. I mean, at, at this point we're, we're we're quibbling over over things that are almost baseline noise. Um, I, I say this as somebody who used to like my main part of my job was in uh detecting you know very small levels of things like very uh you know tiny percentages of things and looking for um for parts of the or components of of a pesticide formulation that have broken down um so like i'm curious what i mean i i obviously don't want um harmful things in people's food supply. This is this is something that I want uh, kept out of the food supply. Absolutely. But I want people to be aware that they're um, that these things are so heavily regulated for a reason. And because we're in such a heavily regulated environment, the odds of you getting something in your food supply that's unsafe at this point is very, very low. I mean, extraordinarily low. So once, so if you see something saying that there are, you know, parts per trillion or parts per billion, um, you know, in someone's system or that their test results pinged positive, uh, ask what their symptoms are. Ask if they have symptoms of pesticide poisoning. Unless they have symptoms of pesticide poisoning, there's, there's probably nothing to worry about. Well, your risk from any kind of, uh, uh, especially, uh, pesticide exposure from consumption is probably several, uh, Several, probably somewhere between ten thousand and a million times lower than uh, car accident. And, yeah, exactly. and if you put these things into perspective as to what the real risk is, I think that people feel much different. And there was yeah. a paper that came out a few years ago from Majeski et al. It was about. Uh, it was reported in the press as seventy-five percent of samples of air and water have glyphosate. And when you read the actual article, yeah, it was that they detected glyphosate at like oh. 3 to 26 nanograms per cubic meter uh 3 3 meters from the side of a soybean field where they use it <laughs> Oh my god are you that's do they test like the day that they sprayed it? I, I don't know exactly that, but what's really funny about it was this was played up in the major media, where you you found uh, infographics online of a little girl standing with an umbrella in rain, saying oh, it's raining God. pesticides on your little ones. You know, and I mean, it's it's funny because they had there was this great video that I found yesterday. And I I don't remember if it was uh, if I just happened to find it yesterday or if it was posted a long time ago, but they were demonstrating how little. Uh, glyphosate they actually sprayed and I think it was from the website ask the farmers and I love that farmers are finally starting to push back a little and say hey hey, guys we're, we're not <laughs> we're not poisoning the food with with toxins with all these horrible nefarious toxins because we promise we like to eat the stuff too um, but they finally came out and said here is how little glyphosate we actually use and they pointed out that it's only about two coke cans worth of glyphosate for like for like a full acre of land and they pointed out that those huge sprayers that people people look at that they think is actually full of glyphosate is actually mostly water and it's an emulsification with just a little bit of glyphosate and a lot of water to disperse uh, to disperse it in. And I think it's wonderful that people see this visual and it makes it a lot easier for people to relate to it when they have it explained to them straight from the farmer. So of course, you know, there are always going to be some people who go, oh, that's a conspiracy. It's not, you know, these are just people trying to make me feel better. But, you know, if they hear it from, you know, directly from a source, from a farmer, not from, you know, me, the evil scientist, who's obviously just trying to, to, to lie to them. No, I'm not. Please don't take me out of context. Um, but, you know, like there's, I think if they see someone pointing out this is ex- actually what it is, is it, it might help there's always going to be a horrible headline that takes something out of context but it'll it's nice to have that little bit of a source um pointing out this is how little is actually used it's we've managed to make this wonderfully effective thing that's that's actually not that toxic yeah, it's that, just it's so perfectly targeted that comes from uh, brian scott and at the farmer's oh, wow. and brian uses a drone to show the region of area that's covered by yes. a by basically 20, 22 ounces of glyphosate, which is about yeah. a 0.75 pounds per acre application. And uh, it works out to something like 80 milligrams per square meter, which if you do all the oh math, I know I, I sit down and geek out with this with the calculator. <laughs> but the beauty of this is if you take the amount of 
of glyphosate that you use and you assume that all of it, like none of it gets on the ground, none of it gets on weeds, all of it is taken up by the plant and moved into the soybeans, you would have to eat something like 1,200 kilograms of soybeans to achieve a, uh, a, um, a, a, a physiological effect. I mean, I, I eat a lot of tofu, so that's popular. That's possible right now. I mean, it's it, it could happen. I'm, I'm kidding. I it probably not that possible. No, not really. It's actually kind of fun. <laughs> if you go on PubMed and you go on PubMed and you look at um, uh, glyphosate suicides, and you can read the accounts of people who've attempted suicide by glyphosate because you know some of these weird medical anomalies, like when this comes in the emergency room and they say, "Yeah, he just drank a gallon of glyphosate concentrate." They they take careful notes because these are you write these things up and put them in journals, and uh, most of them say, "Yeah, the guy got real sick. He threw up. He wasn't feeling so hot the next day, but he went home and now he had to kill himself with something more potent." Um, <laughs> you know, and and oh my god, I mean, I don't want to laugh at someone trying to kill themselves. That's horrible. But the fact that, like, I mean, I'm I'm laughing solely because of the the number of times you hear um, somebody who's trying to fearmonger about glyphosate. Um, it's uh, and they'll say that these people who had their lives ruined by glyphosate because I mean, there are a couple of people in the media um, uh, that are very, so anti Monsanto and so anti glyphosate that they'll say. Um, you know, this farmer who had their lives ruined by it then went home and drank the glyphosate to kill themselves. Um, I just keep sitting there going, "That that's not how this works. You can't do that. So, I mean, the fact that this is actually a case study, just I'm, I, I'm kind of like, I'm horrified that someone tried to kill themselves with it, but I'm kind of laughing that it's not possible to do it. Well, there's, there's a bunch of them. I think they've only been successful in something like 17% of cases. Which, which, as far as suicide goes, you know, you're much better off with Tylenol or, you know, or something like that. Um, I mean, it's, it's depressing that well, I'm, I'm kind of depressed that there are people trying to kill themselves. But, you know, it's uh, at least glyphosate isn't working for it. It gives them a chance to reconsider and not do it. <laughs> it's, 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 it's the moral of the story here. If you're going to do it, at least do glyphosate. It's not going to work. We don't want you to do that. Well, to change change gears a little bit and talk about how there's a number of celebrities who you've commented on and uh, celebrity experts in quotes who really center on the fear around toxins and chemophobia to sell a message or sell a product and what are some of your most notable examples of this well, my, recently there's been, or not recently, but earlier this year, um, there was a a, um, a new uh, pesticide called Enlist Duo that came out, and Dr. Oz made this wonderful announcement that he was taking on the EPA, Congress, and the President, because of uh, because of course um, a television actor can do all of that with an with an episode on daytime TV. I'm sure he had all that power, um, and he started saying it was a new GMO pesticide what does that even mean uh, like everybody who works in this industry knows that gmo pesticide is just that that's such a that's such a ridiculous thing to say because it's here's the thing um enlist duo was a combination of glyphosate and 2,4-d now the way that he could scare people was by saying 2,4-d is agent orange 2,4-d was not agent orange the part of agent orange that was scary was a component um that was taken out of it that was that broke down into a dioxin which was you know really horrible bad news uh you know and obviously monsanto made that and it was really 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 bad news they uh you know that's it's not in this anymore obviously bad once again not saying that the, the part that really harmed people a long time ago wasn't bad news but these two components in the enlist duo totally fine have been tested i actually used to work with 2,4-d in the lab that uh that i worked at fairly non-toxic i mean not by far not the most dangerous shit that i ever worked with um but he went on this whole thing you know it was this great big bit of grandstanding that he was taking on the president the epa and the congress because it was a thing that would get people to tune into his fucking episode um but there was nothing wrong with it it had been tested for i mean for over a decade uh before it was put out and these were two pesticides that were already on the market so there was nothing wrong with it um but it was a really easy way for him to grandstand and to say something has toxins in it so so 
I mean, anytime I hear somebody rallying about toxins, especially when they have a medical show, I mean, sorry, it's not a medical show. It's an entertainment show with a doctor on it. Um, they're probably selling something. Well, that was when he had the big bucket of feathers and, and dumped them out. Was that the right one? <laughs> yeah. What a knob. <laughs> I don't even know. It was either feathers or bowling balls or something with with Dr. Mark Hyman or Dr. Josh. I mean, sorry, Josh Axe isn't a doctor. He's a chiropractor who thinks he's a doctor and he's good looking enough that nobody calls him on it. Um, But he had one of those stupid guest stars that pretends they they have medical expertise on it and and calls things, uh, you know, toxins so that they'll pay attention to him and give him money and buy him another mansion. So that's what uh, that that's what uh, Dr. Oz does. And I I wish him well in all the bullshit that he sells. Yeah. One other quick thought on the uh, Agent Orange 24D angle. And I use 24D all the time, too. It's a synthetic auxin, so it's one of these plant growth regulators that makes plants do stuff that we need them to do. But um, it was uh, there were 16 companies that manufactured uh, 2,4-D and Agent Orange for the war effort. And where people like to say, well, this was the company making poison, well, this was a company making an herbicide, and an herbicide that had been used very safely since the 1940s. And only was it in a time of jungle warfare when our U.S. government decided that they should be weaponizing an herbicide and using that against people. And, yeah, I mean, yeah. it was it was a horrible thing that happened with 2,4-D. Nobody is denying that, and I I think people do a, a disservice to the good work that Monsanto does now when they bring up something that the government asked them to do with a product that was at one point uh, not used unsafely. So it's it's a, it was a horrible horrible thing that happened with 2,4-D. No one's ever denied that. But I mean, I think if we can all move away from from something that was done a long time ago uh, under government contracts uh, to to the good work they're doing now to try to feed starving people, we'll, we'll all be we'll all be a little bit smarter for it. Yeah, that's a really important point. Uniroyal was another company that made it because they used to be a chemical company before they went all tires. And, uh, you know, no one's getting upset and, uh, you know, march against tires or anything yeah, exactly. like that. You it's, know, we're. I mean, let's let's look at what they did in the 60s as Monsanto or not 60s in the uh, let's look at what they did uh, in, in, in the 40s and 30s as Monsanto's stupid teenager phase. Who hasn't done something in their stupid teenage years that they all wish didn't have pictures on Facebook of them doing? OK, oh, it's, we've all. We've all done something really, really stupid that we wish nobody had any proof of them doing. And here's the thing: our parents lived in an era when when there weren't, you know, Insta- when there wasn't Instagram and there wasn't Facebook, and those pictures have gone away. <laughs> like I, I, I'm in the era where we had Facebook, and there's all the proof of it somewhere on Facebook. Monsanto is, I mean, they're a corporation. The pictures will never go away. So, I mean, here's the thing: they did horrible things. Once upon a time, they are a very different corporation now under the same name. So don't punish the scientists who are doing really good work and don't call everything a toxin just because once upon a time they did make a toxin. But it's not the same stuff. So one of the big things that you used to talk about was the uh, toxins that were alleged in the pumpkin spice mm-hmm. latte. And we're getting mm-hmm. into the, the PSL time of year. And what's happened with Starbucks recently in response to their uh, <laughs> the overwhelming uh, push against uh, pumpkin spice? Well, it's, I, I've had to go pumpkin spice latte free this year because Starbucks caved and changed their pumpkin spice latte recipe. So uh, one of the things that started made me start my site was I heard that uh, Food Bay was launching a war on the pumpkin spice latte. And then it was war because you don't fuck with the Bostonians pumpkin spice anything. Um, and she claimed that it had a toxic dose of sugar. I... I did some some hunting around through the SDS sheets, um, and you would have had to have drunk about fifty pumpkin spice lattes, you know, depending on your height and weight, all that good stuff. Not height, your weight, you know. But anyways, uh, uh, you know, fifty pumpkin spice lattes in order to have a toxic dose of sugar. So that was that was total BS. Um, but you know, it's she claimed that the caramel color in it was toxic. Again, with the use of the word toxic, um, no, not toxic, carcinogenic. Uh, it's she was you know throwing around big words that she didn't understand. But then again, she's not very good with language. Um, and you know, we looked it up. It was in the same carcinogen class as something else in the cup. The coffee from the acrylamide accumulated during the roasting process, but she also went on that it was called a pumpkin spice latte, and there was no pumpkin in it. 
it was the pumpkin spice latte. They were talking about the spices. But uh, Subway caved to her, as corporations often do when somebody gives some bad press. Uh, and they both, I believe, they removed the original type of caramel color. They added pumpkin puree to it. Um, and, you know, it's. It, I'm kind of horrified. I'm, I'm a little embarrassed for them because they just put pumpkin in coffee. What are they doing? Don't put pumpkin, don't put, like, you shouldn't be putting butter or pumpkin or the stuff in coffee. What, what, why, why, what are you doing? Somewhere Dennis Leary is screaming, stop putting shit in the coffee. Just, what are they doing? So I've, I've, I've had to, like, and here's the worst thing. There was an interview with her in which she said, I'm still not going to drink it. Oh, my God, what an insufferable human being. Well, she's dancing in the streets with uh, my recent uh, events and seeing yeah. this is a major victory for food babeliness worldwide. But, and, yeah, uh, you know, these, you, people, these people can't even, here's the thing, they had a victory and they still won't eat the stuff. Like, uh, what, stop caving to food terrorists. Like, if these people are people who, like, what next time to any company who might be listening to this, if somebody launches a petition about their your food, ask them, directly ask them, will you eat this product after we make this change? If they say no, don't do it. Don't freaking do it. If they want you to take a dye out or if they want you to add freaking pumpkin and they say, I won't eat the product even after you do this silly little change to your recipe that all your customers already like the recipe, don't do it. Say no. Get out of our store. Go to your little fruity organic place that makes gluten-free organic air for you, okay? Keep eating at that place because our customers like this and you're a pain in the neck. Get out. Well, I think Don't cave the terrorists. I do think that you hit the nail on the head about something here. And this ties in very nicely when we talk about GM crops, pumpkin spice lattes, or whatever. <laughs> it ties in. Here it goes. I, I, here's my amazing synthesis as a scientist to put together to conclude a podcast. Is, is. This is really a war on corporations. And people who make, uh, who have these corporations that aren't seen as good strategic lifestyle fits for these elite crybabies that have a very strict image as to how they feel life should be. And it's these pampered, um, elite, affluent people that are, that are, um, ignoring the science and trying to create the change through force. And, whether it's me or whether it's a pumpkin spice latte or, or glyphosate or Enlist or whatever. These people are out there to make a buck at the same time as trying to do harm to these other facets of our, of, of our culture. Yep, and I, I mean, I have no problem with them choosing to, to eat something else. They can have whatever they want. But don't tell somebody else who's producing a perfectly good product that somebody else enjoys, whether it be all the time or whether it be in moderation, that they can't have it. Because if you don't want to eat it, that's fine. Shop somewhere else. Well, thank you, Yvette, so much for your time today. Um, could you tell us, like, so where do people find you if they're interested in contacting you? Or uh, where will you be appearing, maybe? Or where do you find you on social media? You can find me at my website at facebook.com slash cybabe um, at cybabe.com. And you can find me floating around on Twitter at the cybabe. All right. That sounds really good. So thank you so much for your time today. Again, that's cybabe, Yvette Dantrima, and uh, and her views on toxins. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast that discusses how the newest technologies in traditional breeding and genetic engineering conspire to improve medical treatments as well as animal and plant products. The idea is to use our best tools to feed the needy and help the farmer and do so with respect to our planet. The Talking Biotech podcast is financed and produced 100% by Dr. Kevin Folta and separate from his popular outreach workshops. If you'd like to help, please write a review on iTunes or tell a friend to listen in. With every episode, our numbers grow, and your listenership is truly appreciated, as moving innovation to application requires communication. And if you can't find someone else to do the voice on your podcast, do it yourself and make it creepy by (laughs) using the effects in your effects panel. 
Yeah, so talk back to talking biotech, and I'm going to do something today I haven't been doing lately, and that is answering your questions. I get quite a few, and it's pretty interesting to see how they change through time. And uh, the first one I have today is uh, from Dave, who doesn't say where he's from. Uh, Dave says, uh, there's an interview I listened to where a scientist named Don Huber explained that genetic engineering is a flawed science and that research shows glyphosate is connected to connection to infer- connected to in- connection to infertility in this country, um, which is up 30%, and uh, there's a rise in miscarriages. Are there data to support that? And... Um, you know, Dave, like most Huber claims, uh, no, um, there's not a lot of data, or there's no data to show any kind of uh, connection, at least that I'm aware of, in uh, appropriately uh, performed studies. Uh, Huber is an interesting guy because through time he's had a good academic career at Purdue University. Um, I think he's done some reasonable work in plant pathology, but we're looking at... Um, I don't know what where he's going nowadays, but he makes a lot of really loose claims, and I've famously pointed these out over time. Um, one time, he actually gave a talk in my town, and I was um, eager to. He was talking about his uh, organism that he's now had for I don't know a decade. Uh, this organism that he claims to have isolated that others can isolate and uh, causes all kinds of disease in humans and in livestock and plants. Uh, The CDC has no evidence of this. The USDA has no evidence of this. Purdue University doesn't answer when I ask them where this agent is contained. And uh, Dr. Huber, when I asked him uh, live at a conference, if he would mind sharing a sample of the culture that he claims to have with me, uh, that I could sequence the genome and we would report what that new deadly organism is. And he could have all the credit, no problem. I'd be happy to, you know, relinquish that. That's not an issue. And uh, he um, said, no, not interested. And uh, that was uh, in 2013, maybe. So we're a couple of years ago now and still has not published a paper, um, but still goes on the road claiming these organisms exist. So um, I, I think I would take any of his claims with a grain of salt and understand they're coming from more of an activist than um, than than a scientist a little different ist to promote such ideas um, the next one comes from Annabelle in Red Deer um, who says I've seen so many anti-gmo articles claiming that glyphosate has been recently determined to cause cancer who determined that and she also says that uh, uh, my husband and I applauded at your last week's Trottier Symposium while we were watching it streaming online. Well, that's very nice. Um, So going back to this uh, determined to cause cancer from glyphosate. And glyphosate, as we know, I should have mentioned before, is the chemical that's in Roundup. It's the stuff that's used to select for the crops that are genetically engineered in the field um, to kill the weeds but not kill the crops. And this has been uh, a question a lot in the last year because of a uh, monograph that was published by the IARC, uh, which is an an agency of the WHO. So the World Health Organization, IARC, is the uh, Institutional Assessment for Research in Cancer. I don't know, something like that. But anyway, it's it's IARC is the the acronym. And... um, and I also don't have all of them in front of me. I should have done some more homework here. But in general, they rank everything by either one something, group one, something that's been shown to cause cancer, like sunshine. They'll tell you group 2A is something they call probable carcinogen, meaning that, it, that there's evidence that says that this could be a problem if you were exposed to it. And group 2B is something they call a possible carcinogen, which is... Um, you know, there's no real evidence of it, but, um, you know, maybe it could be, who knows. And then um, group three has no evidence, which kind of is the same as 2B, I guess. But the basic idea is that they've made an assessment of a number of uh, agricultural chemicals back in March of this year and uh, made some claims. And one of them was that glyphosate should be reclassified from non-carcinogenic to um, a probable carcinogen. 
And the media has run with this and said, especially the activist media, you'll see is probably a carcinogen, is uh, a carcinogen, you know, is, is a carcinogen I've read, um, is probably causing cancer. You know, th- that kind of language really does not, while the words fit what IARC I, I, says, the real spirit of what they assessed is not discussed. So let's talk about what that really is. So the IARC is actually a reasonably respected organization, and I think it's important to understand how they operate. Um, From what I can determine, they're very conservative. And if you show any little hint of evidence, they may be inclined to rank something as a potential hazard. So if we look at uh, so what they actually mean by Group 2A, where they've classified glyphosate, it's really used when there's just a, a little bit of evidence of carcinogen, carcinogenicity in, in humans and um, something that is uh, present in laboratory animals. So uh, they are using evidence which has really been well refuted in laboratory animals as a basis for this decision. Um, and, uh, and in humans, some rather flimsy evidence. And we'll talk about that in a second. So um, what they mean is that there's no, um, it still can be due to chance, it, what they're observing. Um, what they're observing could be just um, other variables. Uh, but, but it's something to be very cautious with and something to, be, uh, to think about. And, what, and this is also a hazard-based risk assessment. And what that means is, is that um, a, a rock on the ground would be classified as um, maybe 2B, uh, possibly carcinogenic, uh, or, and then a rock, or I shouldn't say that, possibly a threat, whereas that rock on the top of a cliff that you're standing under would be group 2A, probable, um, because it's not going to jump up and hit you from the ground, but something falling from the sky could. And so that's where this really separates. Okay, it's 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 a it's a hazard if you encounter it, and that's what they're really going to here. And really, what they're talking about is the um, so the animal studies. Okay, they're talking. They cited Seralini and others, which are the lumpy rat studies, which have been generally very well debunked. But let's talk about the evidence from humans. The evidence from humans they do say is limited, but that there's um, associations with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And non-Hodgkin lymphoma is a um, cancer of white blood cells that has been associated with agricultural chemicals. And so when you, uh, they wanted to look at this more carefully. And you could go back into Google Scholar and type in non-Hodgkin lymphoma and herbicide or non-Hodgkin lymphoma and pesticide. And you can look at the different uh, associations that people have attempted to construct. And uh, I think that, you know, it's reasonably compelling that there are some uh, uh, compelling links out there between different agricultural agents and, uh, and this particular cancer. So what they looked at here were really three studies in humans where there appeared to be some sort of weak link with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And when you look at it and you look at the papers carefully, it's possible that you might infer that, but even the associations are extremely weak, and really only one of them is barely st- statistically significant. And um, what what they're looking at, and the way they did this, was what was called a case control study or a retrospective study. So what you do in a retrospective study is you find people that have that disease, and you find people that don't have the disease. And then you ask questions to see if anything lines up. So, in other words, if you ask people with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and a control group, uh, if they eat peanut butter, and both groups say, yes, we eat peanut butter, then you eliminate peanut butter as having any kind of effect. Now, if the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma group says, we eat chunky peanut butter, and the control group says, we eat smooth peanut butter, now you start to see this association between a specific kind of uh, agent and some sort of other effect. It's finding correlations that, that can be compelling because of numbers of statistics that would help filter out other potential causes because of larger numbers used. Now in the studies used here, the numbers were relatively small, but there were slight associations. 
the slight associations um, were just barely slight. And, and when you look across a wider cross-section of these um, studies, you do see other ones that, that echo that same slight effect. And um, maybe individual studies use separate models, meaning different ways of handling the data, to retest those associations. And they still come out, you know, just to the side of significant, not significant, just to the side of an effect, even though without statistical significance. So meaning that a lot of it could be random. But when all your trends are pointing in the same direction, it's important to consider maybe that's something. And so I think that's what IARC is looking at. Um, the problem is, is that you start to confound data based upon other variables that maybe you can't control. And if you're on a farm, and we know from other cohort and other, uh, other longitudinal studies, that there are effects of ag chemicals on worker health, and especially in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, there's some evidence of this um, with older ag chemicals especially. And when you uh, start to say, well, if people are using glyphosate, they may be using other ag chemicals. And so maybe that's where you're seeing this slight increase or you know, slight association. So that may have been what IARC was looking at, was this you know, very weak association that was present. Now we know that this um, kind of case control study, right, where you're comparing a variable and a control in an affected population is one way to do this. The other way to do this is to go forward with what um, D. Roos did. One of the papers in this first set was D. Roos 2003, uh, D. Roos 2005. They either were doing this paper as a follow-up or maybe at the same time. And what they did in this study was rather than do a case control, you do what's called a uh, longitudinal study or cohort study. And what they do is they find a group of people in that um, potential exposure group or that partic particular risk group and uh, follow them through time. And when you do that study and you look at glyphosate users over time, you don't see any specific effect with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So in other words, it comes out in one kind of looser study, maybe, but then a stronger evaluation says no. So I think what you're looking at are uh, ways that IARC, which tends to be a very conservative organization, uh, has looked at this very slight potential association and, and used that to change their association of this particular compound. It um, differs very much from the glyphosate task force of the EU. And the glyphosate task force, rather than taking a few studies that are slightly suggestive and then changing the policy, like IARC did, they looked at all of the data, and they looked at all of the studies, and they looked at everything from all the different um, uh, laboratory experiments and everything else, uh, including a couple dozen case control and cohort studies, and they say there's no link. There's nothing that you can see. And I, th and I think that that's uh, really just the two ways you can look at these data. You can look at everything that's out there and say, okay, we don't see anything that we're convinced about. Or you can take a little subset of these data and say, well, we're, this is a little bit and we see a slight trend, so we should be concerned. And so, in my opinion, I think both are very important to think about. Uh, it does say that we always should be careful with agricultural chemicals, and we should be paying attention to the diseases in the cohorts that are um, associated with their application. However, uh, it's important for us to keep our heads when we do this, and I think uh, giving the very hypersensitive activist media in the world of uh, glyphosate a um, change to probable carcinogen. They don't know what that means, they just are going to echo. It's probably carcinogenic. Uh, meaning that this is something that you're you know, going to get cancer from. It's from what they'll tell you, what they've said. So if you, um, the other thought on this is that there are a lot of allegations about a a uh, little bit of political bias on this committee. And the leader of the committee has made some anti-GM statements, um, hasn't been a big fan of transgenics, has actually defended uh, the Seralini papers in some contexts, um, and the retraction certainly is opposed to retraction, which I kind of understand his point of view. But uh, th there, there is some evidence that 
it wasn't necessarily a group without bias that was making this decision. And that that slight association may have been uh, something they were eager to promote. And when you read through some of the individual uh, decisions, uh, it does appear to be a little bit conspiratorial and a little bit of a tobacco science feel that they say, well, we're worried about you know what the real data say, that kind of feel. So overall, I think what it says is that we always should be careful about, um, about when we evaluate agricultural chemicals. And we always should be very careful in thinking about uh, how, they, uh, how they're used and how they're, um, how they're applied. And we should be very careful with thinking about human health, especially for those that are working in those capacities. Uh, hopefully the, the, the WHO um, or WHO or the WHO will reevaluate with the standard, uh, we won't be fooled again. All right. Um, very good. Um, the last question I got, and I won't name a single. Oh, yeah, here's a good one. Okay, let's go with this one. The last one says, um, I got to meet you in uh, NC State, and I was a graduate student uh, lining up some speakers for a local Kiwanis group next month. I uh, thought it would be a great opportunity to speak about biotechnology. Would you be willing to send me some sources and slides so I could make an effective and uh, compelling message? Um, any presentations would be great. And I think um, what I'd like you to keep in mind is that every presentation I give is part of public domain. I mean, you're more than welcome to have these. And if you could use my presentations or you just want to go through them for your own self or help your kids make a presentation for school or if you'd like something, you know, to to talk to friends about, you can go to slideshare.net and use forward slash my name, Kevin Folta, all one word, and then forward slash presentations. And you can basically find almost all of the presentations I do, um, both either in the area of biotech or other areas. And um, feel free to use what slides you need. You know, take them. If you want to credit me, that's great. If you don't want to credit me, that's fine too. But I just want that to be a resource that can help you develop your presentations faster. And uh, the last thing I'll note then is uh, I don't have an email in front of me on this, but many students talk to me at the Trottier Symposium about how they begin getting involved in science communication. And I said, first thing you want to do is slam your hand in the car door a few times <laughs> so you could uh, see if you could tolerate what the, uh, the lovely feelings it will bring. Um, and uh, so I suggested that, uh, uh, that if you want to get started, the best thing to do is to get your writing into places where people will notice and to do some good, do some good work, some good science journalism. And there's plenty of places and blogs like BioFortified, Um, even Genetic Literacy Project, that will be happy to promote your work. And so to get started in those areas is a really good idea. Just go ahead and start writing and start thinking about ways of synthesizing a very complicated literature and a complicated topic for an average person. And that's a good first step. I think it's really an important one, and there's really a niche that's developing. And I think I've noticed over the last couple of years a deterioration in the major media in terms of their capacity to handle these questions with some um, with some scientific tact, and that maybe makes sense because these aren't scientists; these you know these are journalists who are trying to cipher through it, and I get that. And so, if you feel like there's something you would like to talk about or a problem you could remedy, then you should try to become the media. You should uh, work to develop articles about an aspect of science or science communication that you think is important. There's plenty of places that have good content, and good content will get you noticed. And uh, I think the more you uh, continue to put your work and good work into public spaces uh, and use the amplification tools like Twitter to disseminate that work, you'll find you'll build a quick fan base and uh, be able to have uh, share the thoughts and feelings of others who will be happy to uh, critique your work in real time. And of course... If you uh, can ever use assistance from me, I'm more than happy to help. Just reach out and uh, ask me for assistance. I'm always pleased to help someone who's getting their uh, feet wet in scientific writing or in, uh, in science. I'm more than happy to give you direction. So reach out anytime. So with that, I will conclude episode 19 of Talking Biotech. And thank you so much to Yvette Diatremont for um, joining me today, the Cybabe. And um, thank you for your questions and continue to send those into talkingbiotech at gmail.com. 
So thank you very much for uh, listening again. Uh, We'll call this one finished and talk to you next week with Talking Biotech. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. I love talking about Kennedy. I was just down in Dallas, Texas. You know, you can go down there and uh, to Dealey Plaza where Kennedy was assassinated. And you can actually go to the sixth floor of the school book depository. It's a museum called the Assassination Museum. I think name that after the assassination. I can't be too sure of the chronology here, but... Anyway, they have the window set up to look exactly like it did on that day. And it's really accurate, you know? Because Oswald's not in it. Yeah, yeah, so... Painstaking accuracy, you know. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.